On the topic of unbelief, have you ever experienced doubt? Do you ever find yourself doubting? Have you ever known a time in your life when you felt maybe less sure about some of the things that you once held to be true? It's not really that uncommon for Christians to experience doubt, it has to be said. And there can be various reasons why people do go through times when they doubt. So some can experience doubt because they're going through hard times. They ask questions like, how could God let this happen to me? Why does God not bring it to an end now? Some might experience doubt because of a continuing struggle with sin. They hate sin. They don't know what to do with it. They they say things like, I really wish I was further on in my growth than I am now. I feel like I'm just not growing in my faith. For others, doubt can be prompted even just by feeling really run down and really, really tired. Well, doubts are common for Christians, but I think what is uncommon for Christians is to admit it talking about your doubts now that doesn't really happen very often unless you get to a point where you're really quite in need to talk about it i think the fact that it's quite uncommon is what made the archbishop of canterbury's comments a couple of weeks ago hit the headlines across all of the newspapers Uh, the archbishop of canterbury was interviewed by a bbc reporter And Justin Welby was asked, do you ever struggle with doubt? To which he replied, oh yes, I do. I mean, there are moments where you think, is there a God? Where is God? I think quickly remembering the fact that he is the leader of an 80 million strong Anglican community worldwide, he says, it's probably not something that the Archbishop of Canterbury should say. (laughs) And I think a lot of people agreed with him based on the criticism that came afterwards. Some have said things like a man in this man's position should not be struggling with doubt. Christianity is based on faith, not doubt. And at the very least, you should expect Christian leaders to do what Jesus says you should do, believe and not doubt. (laughs) But others have said, well, good on him. Good on him for being honest enough to admit to something that every believer experiences at some point in his or her life. Doubt. What do you think about Justin Welby's admission? Good thing or bad thing? What would Jesus say to Justin Welby? What would Jesus say to those of us who experience doubts? What would Jesus say to us, especially if we experience doubts, concerning who Jesus is as the promised king sent by God into this world to die for our sins and give us a free gift of eternal life through faith in him. What if we doubt that? Well, let's read Matthew chapter 11, 1 to 19, where I think what we find are two kinds of people doubting Jesus claim to be the one, the Messiah. Believers and unbelievers, those are the two types of people represented here. So let's read from Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, that is John the Baptist, 
heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Oh, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Oh, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Amen. This is God's word. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, let me map out for you uh, where I'm going with this. We're going to take this text in two chunks today, uh, where Jesus deals with believers and unbelievers and says to both, I am the one. I am the one. So number one for us, verses 1 to 15, is a warning to believers. Don't let doubts trip you up. Okay, don't let doubts trip you up, verses 1 to 15. And that'll be the bigger of the two points, so don't panic. And then the second point, verses 16 to 19, the warning to unbelievers, your doubts will be proved wrong. Your doubts will be proved wrong. So number one, a warning to believers, don't let doubts trip you up. If ever there was a passage that honestly acknowledges the reality of doubt in a believer's life, it's this one. Uh, believers can actually have doubts. That's what verses 2 and 3 tell us. So verse 2, John the Baptist reappears on the scene. We've already met John in chapter 3. John was a prophet and everyone in Israel knew about it. People from all over Israel, from regions of Judea, everywhere, were going out to the wilderness to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. And John was so all out for God so powerful in his preaching that many, many people actually thought that he's the one. Are you the one, John? 
But John made it very, very clear in his ministry that he was not the one when he said things like, I'm just the voice. I'm preparing the way. I'm like the steam, he didn't quite say the steamroller. I'm paving the way for the Messiah to come, for the Lord to come. And after all, he said, after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Cross over to the Gospel of John, where John the Baptist is also included in that account. You hear John say, on sight of Jesus, behold, look, he's the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, in that text, you even see John allowing some of his own followers to leave him and follow Jesus. And John would say things like, he must increase, I must decrease. It's all about him. He's the one. Jesus is the one. But something's up. Because when you get to verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 11, we see John questioning whether or not Jesus is the one. In verse 2, look with me, see it? When John in prison heard that the, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now what is it that is making John doubt? I mean, some have said, well, it might be his circumstances. He's in prison at this time. And some people experience doubt because they're going through hard times and he might be. But I don't think that's really what's going on with John. I think it's more to do with his expectations of the Messiah, the one, not being met. Not being met. Where do we get that idea? Well, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, it's apparent that John expected this one, this Messiah, to do two things. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. Now, this is, a, this is an imagery from agriculture back then. In order to, set, to, to get the good grain away and divide it away from the stuff that needs to be burnt up and thrown, thrown out, you would have a big threshing floor in a barn that's full of hay and grain and so on. And what you would do is you'd have this massive big fork and you would, it's not in a barn. I lied. It's not in a barn. It's outside. Do you know why? Because they need wind. Okay, they would, they would, I nearly said wheek, they would wheek, it's a good word, they would wheek the, 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 the grain and the, the, the hay into the air and the good stuff would fall to the ground, the wind would blow away all the light stuff that wasn't necessary. So that's why John's picturing Jesus as one who comes and among the people of the world uses that fork to not wheek them up in the air but to do something that divides what he wants from the things that will be discarded. So his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn. There is salvation. And, that's the first thing, and secondly, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What does that signify? Judgment, right? The Messiah is going to come, the one is going to come, and he's going to bring salvation on the one hand and judgment on the other. Now imagine the scene. John is in prison. Two of his followers are visiting him. So what's Jesus been up to? Maybe he's looking for a report. They report, well, they really report what Matthew's already been telling us. In chapters 5 to 7, well, Jesus has been preaching a sermon on the mount. He's been telling us about how we should live and how we should bank everything on his words. And that's, that's the wise way to live. And the foolish way to live is to not build everything on those words. Okay. 
And then, in, and then we've seen him in chapters 8 and 9 performing some real miracles, incredible things that we've seen. He's shown his authority over creation, his authority even to forgive sins. Wow, that's amazing. And, well, in chapter 10, we've also seen him train up his disciples to get them ready because they're going to take on the mission that's going to spread the glory of God throughout the world. Okay. Maybe John's sitting there thinking, and where's the fire? Uh, Where's the fire? Where's the judgment for the chaff? So I think that's what's behind his doubts. Jesus isn't quite meeting his expectations, John's expectations that he had of the Messiah. And I wonder if maybe you can identify with John even in something like that. Maybe the Christian life isn't quite what you expected. Maybe you didn't expect to struggle with sin the way you do. Maybe you thought life to the full would be, well, fuller. Or maybe you expected Jesus to remove all suffering from your life, but suffering and hardship over a period of time makes you wonder whether or not Jesus will ever deliver you from it. And you say, well, I just thought it might be different. Your expectations are maybe not being met. If you've experienced doubt, what was it for you? Is there any part of the Christian life where expectations are not being met? My encouragement in any of those circumstances is to do what John did. Bring your doubts before Jesus. Ask good questions of Jesus. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. What does Jesus say to those who doubt? Well, Jesus encourages those who doubt to look to the evidence. So what Jesus says to John, verses 4 and 5, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and so on. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing John to the Old Testament text. He's showing him Isaiah, chapter 35 and 61. He's taken a couple of things that speak very strongly about the kind of key signs of what will happen when the Messiah is around, and he spliced them together to show what he's doing. Both passages speak of what the one will do when he comes. He will perform miraculous signs, amazing things that will serve to authenticate the identity of the one as the one, so that we shouldn't doubt it. And John knows this. So Jesus effectively says to him, look at the evidence, John. Look at what I've been doing. Who else, what other man on this planet is able to do the things that, I'm able, that I've been doing? We might say, well, you can look at the Old Testament. You see some of the Old Testament prophets, for example, just men. Preachers, prophets, empowered by God, they're doing miraculous things. Well, true, but not like this. Not altogether. In fact, you'll find it very difficult to find anyone in the Old Testament who makes a blind man see because it doesn't happen. It's only with Jesus that it happens. So Jesus is saying, look, John, the signs, look at this. I'm ser- these signs serve to authenticate. Be encouraged. Look to the evidence. Look at what I'm doing. I'm the one. I'm the one. Now, earlier I said that John's doubts were tied to his expectations being met. Where's the fire? <laughs> He's asking. Now, confirmation of that comes, I think, when you look at the, verse that Jesus, the verses that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 35 and 61. Because when Jesus quotes these passages... He actually leaves out the little bits about God's vengeance on the ungodly. It's a fascinating thing for him to do. It's the fire that John was looking for. 
But what is he doing by leaving that out of those passages? Well, by leaving that out and quoting only the blessings of the Messiah's appearing, it's like Jesus is saying to John, all the blessings of the kingdom are here, John. All the blessings of the kingdom are here because the king is here. I'm the one. I'm the one. You're right to expect judgment, but the time of judgment is not yet. Be patient, John. Don't doubt me because I failed to meet your expectations. I doubt John really had the category for a Messiah who would come twice, one for salvation and again for judgment. Don't doubt me because I failed to meet your expectations, John. I think that's exactly what's behind the warning in verse 6. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And here we see Jesus actually warns those who doubt, sensitively, of course, to trust him. The words for fall away mean to stumble or trip over something that you find offensive. And so Jesus is saying here, don't don't let your preconceived ideas of what you think I should be like trip you up in your walk with me. Let me be who I am because he will be who he is, ever true to himself. And how I think we need that warning. Because maybe we are experiencing doubt because we're going through hard times. We ask the questions like, why, why is this happening to me? Uh, why is God not bringing this to a close? Why is it not ceasing now? Well, what does the evidence say if we're asking the question? You ask, why, what does the evidence say? We understand from the God's word that, that God could stop it right now, but he doesn't. God's word tells us pretty clearly that even in suffering and hard times, he's actually working for our good. He's even promised and, and, and laid it out for us very, very plainly. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of the one who does not stop your suffering at the exact point when you would expect him to. Or what about the archbishop? The one who experiences doubt at times because of the suffering that he sees in the world. What does the evidence say, Justin? Well, it says that God has entered our world into the person of his son, suffered himself, died in our place, in order to restore his creation to what it was meant to be, in order to restore his people to what they are meant to be. And one day he will wrap it all up. One day he will bring it to a great, great end. Justice will be served. The guilty will be punished. And heaven will be installed as a place where there is no suffering, there are no tears, and everlasting joy is on our plate every day. Well, you don't like God's time frame? You think God should do it quicker? Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, Jesus says, because I don't meet your expectations or time frames. Do you see why Jesus encourages us to look to the evidence, to remember who he is and what he's doing? It's not easy. I'm not saying it is. We should be concerned. We should be crying out to God about some of these 
experiences that we have in our lives, whether it's suffering in the world or the hardships we experience ourselves or our struggle with sin, But don't let disappointment with Jesus in these areas trip you up in such a way that you miss the blessings of the kingdom altogether. Trust him. That's what Jesus is calling for. Trust. What does it mean for us as a church? Well, Charlotte Chapel should be the kind of place where it's okay for folks to have doubts and not okay to keep them to yourself. Why? Because doubt will rob you of your joy. Doubt will keep you from making disciples. Why? You're not going to want to share things that you doubt yourself. And doubt will stifle your growth in the likeness of Jesus. Don't you agree, those of you? All of us, I'm sure, at some time have had times of doubt. Aren't those the, the driest times? Aren't those the times when it's hard to pray? Hard to read your Bible? That's why we need each other. If we wrestle with our doubts and do it with the help of our brothers and sisters in this church, we will actually grow stronger in our faith because we've wrestled our way through the doubts. We'll become more effective in our disciple making because we'll be able to answer the very questions and doubts that other people have. And we'll experience a deeper joy actually by dealing with our doubt. So whatever we do, we must never despise or put off the one who doubts. That would be a terrible thing. Jesus doesn't do that. I think that's what we see in verses 7 to 11. Jesus does not despise those who doubt. Verse 7 tells us that, that immediately after John's disciples have gone away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now you can imagine, you can imagine the whispers in the crowd in this situation, can't you? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is having doubts about Jesus. It's like the headlines in the paper a couple of weeks ago. The Archbishop <laughs> is having doubts about God. Oh, a man in his position shouldn't be struggling with doubts, you can hear them say. Oh, good on him, being honest enough to admit it. What does Jesus do in this situation? Well, he doesn't distance himself from John. No, he commends him. It's as if he's saying, don't you dare despise this man for his doubts. Don't do it. Verse 7, he's no reed swayed by the wind. He's no weakling being blown about by political opinion or anything like that. John knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's preached. And verse 8, he's not, he's not dressed in fine clothes. He's not this puppet of public opinion. He's not, he's not in this game for personal gain so that he can get all the good stuff. He wore camel shirts. And ate insects. No, verse 9, Jesus commends him, says he's a prophet. He's not being swayed by public opinion. He's not out for gain. He's a prophet. You should honor him. In fact, Jesus says he is more than a prophet. Have you ever wondered what that means? How can you be more than a prophet? How can you be more than a prophet? Well, John... I suppose in this sense is one who not only spoke the word of God to others, he is one of whom the word of God spoke. So maybe in that sense, Ross read to us earlier, according to Malachi, John is the Elijah who will announce the coming of the Lord and prepare the way for Yahweh, for the Lord himself. 
And in verse 14, of course, Jesus goes on to say, if you're willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. In other words, he is the Elijah. And by a process of logic, (laughs) I am the one. Don't despise this man for the doubts. And by the way, I'm the one. Don't you miss it either. That's what Jesus is saying. Now it gets even better than that. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. Amongst, he's honoring John, remember? I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement to make about a man. Among those born of women, who does that include? Right, that's everyone, okay? That's everyone. No one is greater than John the Baptist. Think about that. Among everyone in the world ever, there is no one greater. Okay, some of you are thinking about Old Testament heroes of the faith, I'm sure. Well, is he greater than Moses? Did he lead like a million people across the Red Sea on dry ground? Well, no, John didn't do that. Okay, was he a king like David, a man after God's own heart, who loved his people and his people loved him? Well, no, he wasn't a king. He was a prophet in the desert. So what makes John greater? The simple fact that he was the close of the old covenant. This whole line of prophets who were getting the people ready for the one to come. He is greater more than a prophet in the sense that he was the last one who was able to point to Jesus and go, he's the one. He's the one. The simple fact of what makes him greater, says Jesus, is that he introduced me. Isn't that an amazing thing to read? Imagine I got up here today and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know that Ross McNabb is the greatest man ever born of women. Do you know why? Because he introduced me. You're like, that's crazy talk, Garvey. Get down. Stop talking. Let's sing a song. It's crazy talk. Unless the one being introduced really is the Messiah King. Unless he really is the one that we've all been waiting for. The Son of God himself. The road prepared And Jesus is the Lord walking down it. It's an amazing thing to say. Brothers and sisters, listen to this though. Because it gets even more amazing than that. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, who's greater? Look Look at the text. What does it say? Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Brothers and sisters here today, you are greater than John the Baptist. Do you know that? Okay, you don't look too happy about that. I thought, I thought you'd be a lot happier. <coughs> Here's why. If you have turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin, you are in his kingdom, under the new covenant of his blood. And even if you're the least in that kingdom, Even if you've just become a Christian in the last two minutes, that'd be great. Or in the last week or two weeks. Even if you're just an infant in the faith, you are greater than John the Baptist. Do you know that? In what way? Now, for this to make any sense at all, we must see that it links with the greatness of John. So John's greatness was tied to his ability to point to Jesus with utmost clarity. 
But John died before Jesus did. He died under the old covenant. And he died under law. But we who live beyond the cross, who live in the new covenant era, in this age of grace, are able to preach a clearer message even than John. And to point to Jesus as the one to those around us with even greater clarity than John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we point to his cross. Because if we can say Jesus died on the cross for my sins, bore my guilt, God accepts his sacrifice on my behalf, and he raised Jesus from the dead. If we can say that, we can say more than what John the Baptist said. And that, that proclamation, that's what makes you great. That's what makes you greater than John the Baptist. If you can say that, even if at times you struggle on occasions with some doubts and some questions because of the hardness of life or the struggle with sin or whatever, we, can, we are greater than John the Baptist because, well, we're new covenant people. We're the church. And as his children, we are loved. We're loved. So believers can have doubts. It happens. What does Jesus say to those who doubt? Look to the evidence. But heed the warning. Don't let doubt trip you up and keep you from walking in faith. And know that Jesus doesn't despise you because you doubt. He is still at work through his spirit in our hearts even to commend us, to use us before the world in mission, to tell them about Jesus. And one day he will take us and commend us even before the Father. He'll acknowledge us before God, the Father. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. That's the first point. What about the second thing? What about unbelievers? That's Jesus dealing with believers who doubt. What about unbelievers? Doubt for the unbeliever. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. We're so glad you're here. It's a good Sunday to come. Any Sunday's a good Sunday to come. But doubt for an unbeliever is a whole other issue. That's why in verses 16 to 19, Jesus gives this warning to the crowd because they're continuing in their unbelief. John still believes in God. He's a man of faith. But the crowd, we don't know where they're at. And if you're a believer, this section actually helps you understand the unbelief of 95% of our population, of this city. And if you're not a believer yourself, Jesus, in fact, uses these words in these verses to almost take a scalpel to your doubts and show you the underlying issue beneath. And his warning is, your doubts will be proved wrong. Your doubts will be proved wrong. I've said doubt is different for, uh, for unbelievers. For many people who already believe, doubt's commonly connected to a lack of knowledge, failure to kind of take firmer hold of the truth, and find the right information, camp on the right truths, and doubt is resolved. But for those who don't believe in God, there's a greater barrier to faith. Finding the right information doesn't always lead a person to say, I believe this. I believe he's the one. Why? Well, Jesus says there lies in every unbeliever a deeper resistance to the implications of believing. And that's why they refuse to believe. So look with me, verses 16 to 17. Jesus actually compares unbelievers with huffy children. 
to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to others, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. Now what Jesus is doing here is probably picking up an illustration of what actually happened in the marketplaces of those days. All the people would go down with their little carts and stalls. They'd be selling things and buying things in the marketplace. The kids would be running around having fun. And what the Jesus is saying for us is that there are kind of two games that the kids would like to play. Some would say, I know, let's play, let's play weddings. I'll be, the, I'll be the groom, you be the bride and, and let's play the flute. Okay, start the music up and then there's a bunch of kids who are just like, nah, nah, I don't want to play that. They're like, okay, okay, I know, let's play funerals. I'll be the corpse, you know, let's, you know, you be the pallbearers, you know. And then, like, you, let's start wailing. And then, like, there's kids who are just saying, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that those who are in unbelief, like the people in these crowds, are just like those kids. It doesn't matter what song is played, they're not happy because it's not their tune. They're, not, they're just not happy. They're huffy kids. People with parents know what this is like. This this commonly happens at birthday parties. And normally the guilty party is the one whose birthday it is. Okay? Come on! No, I'm not one to play. I didn't win past the parcel. It's your birthday. You're getting a whole heap of presents. Let these little kids just win something. You know what it's like. They're like, come on then, let's let's play musical statues. Statues. Statutes? That's a good one. Let's play musical statues. You're not, nah, I don't want to play that. Why? The, the issue's not in the game. It's just that they're not getting their way. It's just not being lined up for them. They, they want it to be, the way they want it to be lined up. They always find an excuse not to play the game. In other words, in this context, you'll always find an excuse never to believe. Not to believe, not never. And Jesus basically takes this image and this illustration and applies it to more than mere child's play. He says, God has sent messenger after messenger into this world to tell them the bad news that that they are sinners and to tell them the good news that God forgives sinners, but they're never happy. They get a serious kind of doomsday kind of preacher like John and they're like, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to repent. This guy's got a demon. Or they get a bridegroom like Jesus. He's full of grace. He's with sinners. He's opening up a feast. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come, all you who are weary. And they're like, nah, that's a bit too easy. I think I should find my way to God somehow. I should prove my worth before him. What Jesus is highlighting, it's not just a lack of evidence for people believing. It's a lack of willingness. And Jesus in this text says that with John... And with himself, God has given them the gospel message in stereo. Whether you heard the dirge or the wedding march, you did not wail, you did not dance, you did not respond the way you're supposed to respond. Why? It's just not going my way. Therefore, I'm rejecting it. That is a dangerous thing to do. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. You might think you're a good person but in God's eyes you're way way worse than you think you are you're dead in your sin 
you're even hostile to God. God's word says his wrath, his just anger, hangs over you and judgment is coming. The winnowing fork is in his hand. Now you might say, hang on a minute, I don't like that. Your message is too harsh. Okay, well let me put it this way. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to die for you. And if you just believe in him, he opens up to you a wealth of blessings, namely forgiveness of sin and eternal life in his presence forevermore. And it's a free gift of grace. All you've got to do is pray and receive it. Now to that, you might say, oh, that's too easy. Are you telling me that if there's a murderer on his deathbed, repents and turns to Jesus, that he'll find forgiveness? No, I'm not sure I like that. That's the bad news. That's the good news put together. It's a, it's a John the Baptist way, a Jesus way in some respects. How do you respond to that? You find yourself continuing an unbelief. What will it take? My encouragement for you today, if you're not a Christian, is to take a scalpel to your doubt. Incise the dubiety. Peel back the layers of skepticism. Don't let your questions act as masks for rebellious hearts. And if you're willing, why don't you come and chat with us? You should doubt your doubts. You've got questions about the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible, how, it all, how it's all put together. Come and chat to us. You've got questions about how God could allow suffering and hardship in a world like this. Come and chat to us. He who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. If you're willing to listen, if God's given you ears, you should listen. You should listen. It's too important to ignore. The last thing Jesus says, and with this I finish, wisdom is proved right by her actions. That's the way he finishes it. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says, if you're criticizing, no matter what I do, no matter what John does, no matter what the message is, you doubt it. But in the end, truth will justify itself by what it produces. The proof is in the pudding. This is being said at a time when Jesus has some followers. There are crowds, but he has 12 disciples. After his death and resurrection, he's going to send them out. It basically starts with them, this thing called the church, God's people, gathered by the gospel. That's it's geographically located in that area it is that small but the proof of the pudding is in the fact that there is a church that is here today and you're gathered with those people the proof of the pudding is in the fact that the gospel has advanced even though forceful people have laid hold of it it has advanced beyond the borders and territories of Israel beyond the borders and territories of the Middle East and it has spread to all continents that are still unreached places that should be a primary concern of ours but the gospel is spreading the church has grown the proof is in the pudding it's as if Jesus says you can criticize me as the Christ but where you're going to run into trouble is where you run into people whose lives he's changed people like us we all have testimonies of the way that God has taken us from our sin 
and giving us life and doing a transforming work in us. Don't we, brothers and sisters? And people can criticize the church, but you're going to have problems when you have to explain why the church has had the impact that it's had on the world and will continue to do so. That's maybe not how it would be according to your wisdom. Well, I'm looking for signs, you might say. I'm looking for writing in the sky, for liver shivers. I'm looking for, you know, that feeling you get just when you're sure. I'm waiting for that audible voice. I'm not looking to a bunch of people to allay my doubts. Well, I appreciate that that's not what many of us would have chosen to do. But we're not working with man's wisdom here. It's God's wisdom that's behind this plan. To both send his son to a cross and to gather together people of the cross who will take that message out and proclaim it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on what? Men's wisdom. But on what? God's power. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Come to him in faith. Receive from Jesus the gift of eternal life today. And brothers and sisters, know that Jesus does not despise you for your doubts. But be careful that your doubts do not trip you up. Let God employ you with increased joy as you wrestle through your doubts in spreading the fame of his glorious name throughout this nation, throughout this city, throughout the whole world.
That's your job. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow our heads and pray.